Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Balance Wand Podcast, Soul on Fire. I'm your host, Jordan Younger, and I'm so happy that you're here. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you're part of our TBB fam, and you probably know that I am in my second trimester of pregnancy. So the podcast has been a lot of solo episodes lately because I've had so much to say and so much that I've wanted to document on this pregnancy journey so far. From spiritual awakening during pregnancy, and before pregnancy to just the whole journey. I have an episode with Jonathan, my husband, that is hands down my favorite episode that we've ever done on the podcast. So if you have not caught up with those, I would highly recommend it. And today I'm so happy that we're back with my first guest in a while because of all of those solos for the last month or so, Dr. Bruce Grayson. I was so excited to interview Dr. Grayson. He is incredible. He's been featured on Netflix. He is the author of the book After, and he is the leading researcher on near-death experiences. So I'm so excited to share this episode with you guys, not only about something that I believe in from a spiritual perspective because it's happened to me, but also because it goes along with my beliefs of the afterlife and soul families and journey of souls and traveling in these soul pods that I so much believe in and have had a lot of experiences just, you know, thinking about and studying and researching on my own. So to talk to an actual doctor, he is the Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia, and he was previously on the medical faculty at the University of Michigan and the University of Connecticut, where he was the Clinical Chief of Psychiatry. He has consulted with the National Institutes of Health and addressed Symposia on Consciousness at the United Nations and at the Dalai Lama's compound in India. And he has earned many awards for his medical research and was elected a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the highest honor bestowed by that organization. So you'll hear all about his interest in near-death experiences, how it began just a few months after he graduated medical school when he treated an unconscious patient in the emergency room who shocked him with knowing what was going on in a different room because she had left her body. So it's very, very cool for me to combine science with spirituality on this podcast. This is such a spiritual podcast. And I occasionally get requests, can you talk about the science behind all of this stuff? Because I know that a lot of us, we want to believe that there is something bigger out there and that we are meant for so much more. And our souls, we don't just come to this 
earth, be human for no reason, and then leave this earth and then nothing happens. I really don't believe that. So it's very, very cool to talk to an expert in something that fuses spirituality and science. And you should definitely check out Dr. Grayson's book after it is. The subtitle is A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. And you can also see him in the Netflix documentary, Surviving Death. Although Dr. Grayson said maybe the entire documentary wasn't his favorite representation of NDEs, but I think it was still really interesting to watch. So Dr. Grayson, so happy to have him here and can't wait for you guys to listen because I forgot to tell him my near-death experience when we were talking. I wanted to just introduce the episode by talking about my personal near-death experience, although I do have a solo episode on this that was recorded in the summer of 2019, which I believe was called my rock bottom episode and why I'm taking some time off, which was something that resulted in me taking the rest of the year off of podcasting, which was a very, very, very big deal, something that I had never done before and have never done since. So I was very sick with Lyme. I'm going to keep this really brief so that we can get into the conversation, but I do want to tell you guys about it because this is one reason why I was so excited to do this episode. So this was the summer of 2019, like I said, the summer before my wedding. And I was being tossed around at this point from doctor to doctor. I was doing everything under the sun to heal Lyme disease and to heal all the different symptoms of chronic illness. So I ended up seeing a biological dentist and that is a holistic dentist. There are not that many of them, but there are some really good ones in LA and in some other places. And they did an x-ray in my mouth and saw that I had cavitations, which are these little pockets of air that can be left behind in your gums after you have your wisdom teeth out if the person doing it didn't do a very good job of sealing it all up and making sure that bacteria doesn't get stuck in your mouth. So I had my wisdom teeth out when I was 18, meaning I had about, at that point, like 11 years of bacteria growing in those cavitations. So they found mold in those cavitations and Lyme. And that's very disgusting, but I had Lyme disease in my mouth and the health of your mouth is so important because everything that happens in your mouth and in your gums drips directly down to your heart. And a lot of people say that everything goes back to what's going on in the mouth. So I was told by many different doctors, including the biological dentist, that the cavitation surgery could be the heal all, the cure all miracle for me. So of course I did it. And as with all of the surgeries that I had done up until that point, I was told, oh, don't even worry. It's not going to be that big of a deal. The recovery is not that bad. It's really going to be fine. And the only people who were really truthful with me about how difficult the recovery actually was were other Lyme patients who had had that surgery. I had a couple of good friends who had just had a hell of a time healing from that surgery. So I kind of knew what to expect, but I had no idea the true pain that would come. And I had had like my abdomen cut open. I had had really intense things, really intense surgeries, but this cavitation surgery was the most intense. So after the surgery, I was on a lot of different pain medication. And at the time I was working with this THC and CBD pharmacy for pain, for 
management of Lyme. And I had been talking to the pharmacist before my surgery and he said, we're really going to want to up your THC after your surgery. It's going to help you sleep. It's going to help you heal. I'm just going to give you this new formula and you're going to take it and it's going to be so helpful. So I listened to him. Meanwhile, I was on these heavy duty pain medications. Tramadol, Tramadol was the name of the pain medication. And because I'm such a holistic person, I just had no idea the complications of mixing pain pain medication with other things. And you would think maybe if I was in my right mind, I would have thought about these complications or possible contraindications, but I wasn't in my right mind. I had my surgery. I was loopy. I was in severe pain. I was just in a twilight. So I ended up taking THC with tramadol and then not only THC and tramadol, but I also took like 35 tablets of chlorella. And that was something else that I had been told by one of my doctors to take after the surgery to soak up all the bacteria that would be and the toxins that would be leaving my body. So 35 tablets of chlorella, tramadol, and THC. Then I went to sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and somehow walked into the bathroom and felt all of my organs shutting down. And if you want to hear the whole story, you should definitely listen to the original episode that I did about it. But I sat down to pee and I couldn't pee. Nothing would happen. And so that started giving me a panic attack. I started feeling my organs not working. And then I floated above my body. And I could see my body on the bathroom floor screaming for Jonathan and trying to breathe, hyperventilating, freaking out, seeing things because mind you, I was not a THC person. So I'm like completely hallucinating at the same time. And I'm floating my soul and my spirit was floating above my body. And I was looking down at my body thinking, this is how you die. This is how you're going to die. And I just didn't, I didn't want it. I was not going to accept it. I didn't want it. I remember almost swimming through the through the air to try to get back to my body and just praying and just saying out loud over and over and over again, I am not ready to leave. This is not how I'm going to do it. I am not going out by an accidental overdose of pain medication. This is horrible. So basically, Jonathan called my mom. She came down here. They tried to calm me down because I came back into my body, but I was completely hallucinating and hyperventilating. And we ended up looking up the complications between THC and tramadol. They were fatal. And, you know, we ended up going to the hospital. And I thank my lucky stars that I'm okay because that's a fatal combination of drugs. And this is why I'm such a huge advocate. One of many reasons why I'm such a huge advocate for not only natural healing, because when you're healing naturally, you don't even have the risk of mixing these horrific medications that could kill you. But beyond that, I mean, I just was not, I didn't have a proper advocate. Like I didn't have a doctor telling me, Hey, by the way, make sure if you're taking tramadol, you're not taking anything else. Or the THC pharmacist saying, by the way, you should probably check and make sure that you're not being put on pain medication because you would never want to mix pain medication with THC. Nobody told me any of those things. So my near-death experience gave me so much perspective because I came back into my body and the first thing that I thought was, holy shit, I've been in so much pain for all these years. I've been 
in some ways wishing to die, as horrible as that sounds, but a lot of people with chronic illness will understand. And I came back into my body and the only thing I wanted was to live. And the perspective that I got was nothing matters except for our health and our family. And that's about it. So that's why I canceled work commitments for the rest of that year. It was, I think it was September, 2019. And I just realized if I'm not going to get healthy, I have nothing to live for. So no, am I going to drag myself around and do things that don't matter to me? I'm just putting myself first, putting my health, putting my family first. This is a rock bottom and I'm going to listen to this. And of course, there were so many larger things going on there with my angels and my spirit guides. And I just journaled about this experience for six months and learned so many things and gained so much insight. So that is a brief insight into why near-death experiences are so important to me and something that I really, really wanted to cover on the podcast. And if you've had a near-death experience, I would love to hear about it. Please send me a message or an email. And I would just love to I would love to read it. I would love to hear your experience. And I'm so happy that you survived if you had a near-death experience. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank our sponsor for today's show, Sakara Life. Sakara Life is my favorite plant-based delivery service. I am addicted to their meals. Seriously, it just makes life so much easier. Everything's so delicious. This morning, I had an adaptogen, gluten-free, vegan, totally healthy donut that was incredible. Sakara, you're amazing. So Sakara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. If you're looking to change your diet instead of restricting what you eat, what if you nourish your body with the healthiest and most nutritious food? With Sakara, you're putting the best in your body so that you can feel the best. And I know that a lot of us are pressed for time. And so I think time is what gets in the way of a lot of our health goals. And Saqqara definitely helps you save time. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients. They're designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. Their menu of breakfast, lunch, and dinner changes weekly, so it's super creative. They have visiting chefs, and so you'll never get bored. And it's always delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S., Along with delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. Experience the power of organic raw cacao in their metabolism super powder. It works to boost energy, eliminate bloating, minimize sugar cravings, and reduce fatigue. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off of their first order when they go to sakara.com slash balanced and enter the code blonde20 at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash balanced to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash balanced and enter code blonde20. With that, let's get into this episode with Dr. Bruce Grayson. Dr. Grayson, I'm so happy that you're here. Your book on near-death experiences is so fascinating and is truly such a game changer for just fusing science with spirituality, which is so important. So tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you got started in this field. Well, thank you, Jordan. I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't uh, come into this field willingly, I'll tell you that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started out in a scientific household. My parents were scientists and they were uh, skeptics. Uh, as far as we knew, the physical world was all there was. We never talked about anything spiritual or religious in our family. It just wasn't part of our world. So I grew up with that mindset uh, that what you see is what you get. And uh, when you die, that's the end. And that was fine with us. That's just the way life was. So I went through college and medical school with that mindset. And then when I started my psychiatric training, just a few weeks into my uh, internship, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. I went down to see her and she was unconscious. I couldn't uh, talk to her. But her roommate who had brought her in was waiting for me down the hall in another room. So I went down to talk to the roommate, got information from her about the patient's background, what stresses she'd been under and so forth. Talked to her for about 15 or 20 minutes and then went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And when I saw her the next morning, she was barely able to keep her eyes open. She was still very drowsy. I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Uh, that just stunned me because I, I, I didn't know how that could be. So I said to her, you know, I thought you were out cold last night when I saw you. And she opened her eyes then and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, I, I just couldn't imagine what she was talking about. Yeah. The only way that could have happened is she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. How can you leave it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was kind of fumbling around with what to say next. And she picked up my confusion. And then she started to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, my questions and her answers. And she made no mistakes. And I just couldn't understand how this was possible. But I had a job to do there. I was trying to help her with her confusion. I couldn't deal with mine. So I kind of pushed my feelings in the background and tried to, to deal with her. And in the next several days, as I tried to process this, I tried to tell myself that this was a trick someone was playing on me. Maybe the nurses were trying to fool me or something. I just, I just couldn't imagine how it could be. But I didn't dare tell anyone about this. I mean, they, they think I was crazy. No one had heard about near-death experiences back in those days in the early 70s. So I tried to push it out of my mind. And then about five years later, one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia, Raymond Moody, wrote a book called Life After Life. And she gave us the name near-death experiences and told us what they were like. And I realized for the first time that this thing that happened to my patient wasn't just one isolated incident, but it was part of a worldwide phenomenon that lots of people were having. I still couldn't understand it, but it was something that was definitely there. And as a scientist, I felt obligated to look into it and to study it and find out what's going on with this. It's not scientific to pretend something isn't happening. You know, Mm -hmm. that's true. So I I went toward it. I tried to start collecting cases and uh, a bunch of other people who had read Moody's book, uh, scientists from other other universities uh, wrote to him and said, we want to study this also. So we got together. And we formed an organization to support each other and to study near-death experiences. And this eventually became the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which has been going on for about 45 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started studying near-death experiences, and uh, here I am 50 years later still trying to understand them. Wow, that is so fascinating. So you've been doing this work for over 45 years. Yes, yes. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So you have met so many people then that have had these near-death experiences. Yes. yes. What have been some of the craziest or just the most wild <laughs> stories you've heard? 
Well, I mean, it's hard to pick one up because every one is just amazing to me. But there were some that really uh, just seemed seemed hard to dismiss. Uh, and some of those are the ones that have accurate out-of-body perceptions, like the patient who, who saw me in the other room. But one of the ones that was most impressive to me was a, a 55-year-old uh, truck driver who had crushing chest pain one day and drove himself to the emergency room. And they evaluated him and found that four of the blood vessels around his heart were clogged. So they rushed him to the emergency to the operating room for emergency coronary bypass surgery. Uh, and during this operation, he left his body and he looked down and he saw his surgeon flapping his arms like he was trying to fly. Uh, and when he told me about this a couple of days later, um, I thought he had to be hallucinating. I had never seen anything like this. I've been a doctor for 30 years at this point. You don't see doctors on TV doing that. So I assumed it wasn't true, but he insisted it was. So with his permission, I talked to his doctor and a surgeon sheepishly said, well, yes, I did do that. He had developed this unique habit that no one else had ever used as far as he could tell. He let his assistant start the procedure while he got his sterile gown and gloves on. And then he went into the operating room and watched them start the operation. And to avoid touching anything that wasn't sterile, he placed his palms on his chest where he knew they wouldn't touch anything. And then he pointed things out to his assistants using his elbows so he wouldn't touch anything with his fingers. And he wiggled his elbows around and it looked like he was trying to fly. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Yeah. There's no way the patient could have known about that. No, absolutely. Wow. So cool. So what do you say to people that say that these near-death experiences are just dreams or hallucinations or just figments of our imagination? Well, as a psychiatrist, that's one idea that occurred to me that these are just hallucinations. So I looked into that. And for one thing, hallucinations don't produce these accurate perceptions like the out-of-body experience does. Uh, for another thing, they, the near-death experience is not forgotten. I've talked to people decades after their experience and it's like it's happened yesterday. It's crystal clear in their minds. And I can't remember a dream I had 10 years ago, let alone a hallucination somebody had. So they, they fade pretty quickly. Furthermore, hallucinations are very idiosyncratic. Each individual has a unique one that no one else is like. And near-death experiences are the same all over the world and through the centuries. So there, there are no, no similarities between hallucinations and near-death experiences. They're very different phenomena. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with you. I'm just trying to think of things that people might right. say, that's just a hallucination, but that's right. such a clear description that you just gave. Yeah. And something that I found interesting in your book was that even though your colleague was the first one to say near-death experience to really put a term to it, there were instances of it way back in the Greek, the ancient right. Greek That's times. Right. So yeah. what was some of that research that you found? Well, again, there, there were uh, a lot of cases, um, maybe two or three dozen that we know of from the ancient Greek and, and, and Roman literature. And one of the most astounding was written by uh, Pliny the Elder in the first century. Um, he wrote about a, a Roman nobleman who was pronounced dead and he was brought to the undertaker and, and his brother, his younger brother made the arrangements for his uh, funeral. And while he was on the uh, embalming table, ready to be embalmed, he suddenly sat up and he said that he had just been to his brother's house and his brother had died. And he said that his brother told him that his brother wanted him to take care of the, his younger daughter, his little daughter, 
And he told him where there was some buried treasure in his backyard. And the undertaker sort of looking at this with his mouth hanging open. And then the brother's uh, servant comes running into the mortuary saying that his master has just died. Uh, there's no way that this guy could have known about that. Uh, yeah, he did. Wow. That is. And we still have cases now. Yeah. The, the same type of thing where, you know, a lot of people will see deceased loved ones in their near-death experience. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for debunkers to say, well, that was just wishful thinking. You know, you expected them to die. You, they, they, you knew they were dead. You expected yourself to die. So you wanted to be reunited with them. But these are cases in which the, the patient did not know that the deceased person they met was dead. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that can be expectation. Yeah, no, definitely. Wow. So what are some other common threads that you see between different near-death experiences? Well, we've looked at cases around the world from different cultures, different religions to find the consistent patterns. And almost all of them have a same pattern of a phenomena. They frequently have a sense of leaving the physical body. They often can look down and see the body from an out-of-body perspective. They have an overwhelming sense of peace and well-being. They often leave the physical realm and find themselves in some other world that seems to be non-physical. That's often a world of light where they may encounter a being of light. This is not like a light bulb or the sun. It's an actual living being that radiates warmth and love and acceptance. Some people may put a label on this, call it God. Other people will not. They may also see deceased loved ones. Uh, they may come to a point where they review their entire lives. And at some point, they may reach a decision to come back to life or be told against their will to come back to life. And they find themselves back in their bodies again, trying to understand what happened to them. Wow. Yeah. The, the concept of reviewing their life is so yes. interesting to me. Yes. And I've read a lot of spiritual books. There's a book called Journey of Souls. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't. Yes. It sounds um, fascinating though. Oh, you would love it. I mean, it's definitely the much more spiritual take mm -hmm. on all of this stuff, right. but they talk about a life review. Every yes. person who has these near-death experiences speak of this review of their life. That just sounds so fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the most interesting part of it to me is that in about 80% of life reviews, the person experiences their lives not only from their own perspective, but through the eyes of other people as well. And let me give you an example of that. One fellow who was a, uh, a manual laborer, had, he had an experience when he was in his 30s. He was working under his truck in his driveway and it fell and crushed his chest. And in his near-death experience then, he reviewed his entire life. And he described it in minute detail, many different episodes, but all, a lot of them were seen not only through his eyes, but through someone else's as well. And one of those was when he was a teenager and he was driving his truck down the road and a drunk man happened to wander out in front of his truck and he jammed on the brakes and was furious because the guy almost dented his truck, God forbid. So he rolled down his window and he yelled at the man and the four poor man being intoxicated reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Now that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he opened the door, got out, and started beating the man up mercilessly and left him a bloody pulp on the median, median strip and then drove off. When we had his near-death experience, he relived this not only through his own eyes, feeling the rage and the adrenaline rush, but also through the eyes of his victim. And he felt this man, the humiliation, of being beaten up by this little punk 
Uh, he felt the um, 32 blows of Tom's fists in his face. He felt his nose getting bloody and his teeth going through his lower lip. And Tom came back from this near-death experience, realizing that we are all the same. There's no difference between you and me. What I do to you, I do to myself as well. And a lot of near-death experiences have told me that this sort of reinforces the golden rule, which is a part of every religion we have. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But they say for them, it's no longer a guideline we're supposed to follow. It's a law of the universe, like law of gravity is here. You can't avoid it. This is the way the universe works. If you help other people, you're helping yourself. If you hurt them, you're hurting yourself. And that changes the way they live after that. I believe that. It's like that concept that we are all one. That, yes. That's pretty much what I believe. And that makes so much sense. Yes. Another thing I noticed in your book is that a lot of people spoke of a guide, like a spirit guide or a lost loved one guiding them in the afterlife. Is that something that you can tell us more about? Right. Well, a lot of people do have that. You know, many will find themselves in this other realm and kind of confused about what's going on there. And then someone may come to them that they may recognize like a deceased loved one, or sometimes just a spirit being they don't recognize who will guide them through a life review and help them reassess uh, what I don't want to say good and bad, what they've done right and what they've done wrong or might have been a mistake. Um, so they can not so they can be judged, but they can come back and do it better next time. And these guides may show them around this other realm and eventually tell them. Uh, it's not your time. You have some more work to do. You need to go back. Interesting. So what do these other realms look like? Like, do they look different or the same for everyone? I'm so interested in the visual aspect. Well, you know, when you ask a near-death experiencer what it was like, they almost always start by saying, there aren't any words. I can't describe it. So we say, you know, great, tell me about it. So we know we're making them distorted by putting it into words. So they choose whatever metaphors they have available to them, which often are religious or cultural metaphors. So what they actually experienced is not the same as what they described to us. And when they describe the other realm to us, it's more or less a metaphor for what really happened. And many of them will rely on traditional religious images of, of heaven, but that's not really what they experienced. That's just how they want to describe it to us. In fact, one person told me, he laughs when he hears people talk about pearly gates and so forth, because he said, that's such, such a poor imitation of what really happened out there. Uh, really? So what does he say happened? It, it's you just can't describe it. Right. I, I experienced right. it, but I can't tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So people have had a lot of a lot of positive, light filled experiences. Have you ever heard of a negative, dark experience? Because I know yes. we think of heaven and then we think of right. hell. Right, right. When we first started doing this research back in the late 1970s, we were relying on people coming forward and telling us about their experiences. And all we heard were the beautiful ones, the blissful ones. So we assumed that's what it was. And then when we started looking at every patient who was admitted to the hospital with a cardiac arrest, for example, and asking them what they experienced, then we started hearing a more unbiased sample. And we did hear some unpleasant ones. Uh, most people who have studied this think that about between 1% and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant. However, uh, it's very hard for people to talk about these experiences. So there may well be a lot more that we just haven't heard about that people aren't willing to tell us about. Mm. So we don't really know how many there are. And there are different types of unpleasant experiences. 
the, the smallest uh, minority are ones that are typically hellish in imagery with fire and brimstone and demons. I've only heard those from people who were raised in a religion that tells you to expect that. Some Roman Catholics or fundamentalist Protestants. I've never heard it from anyone else. Mm-hmm. There's a larger number that are uh, just, they find themselves in a featureless black void with no sound, no sight, just nothing. And they feel they're going to be like this for eternity with nothing to relate to, which is terrifying for most Westerners. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I've talked to a couple of people who were raised in India as Hindus, and they had this type of experience, and they thought that was nirvana. That was just blissful, merging with wow. the nothingness. Wow. So again, your culture determines how you interpret this. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Because to me, that sounds scary. <laughs> yes. Black void. That's what I used to fear about death, just this nothingness. That's because we're Westerners. You know, you were trained to, to have things to relate to, people to relate to. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. It's very interesting that our culture shapes our mind, our consciousness. Yes. yes. And Well, I'll tell you that the largest number of unpleasant experiences sound just like the pleasant ones, but they're experienced in a terrifying way. For example, people will feel themselves being ripped out of their bodies and thrust down a tunnel at breakneck speed and confronted by a blinding light. And they're terrified about all this. And they're trying to fight and get back to their bodies. And these are people who are always in control of their lives and are terrified about being out of control. And in your death experience, you're not in control. So it's a very frightening experience for them. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of them, at some point, they will get exhausted trying to fight against it. And they'll just give up and they'll surrender to it. And as soon as they do that, it becomes a blissful experience for them. So this is our American obsessional nature to stay in control of things. It that definitely. makes these experiences unpleasant for us. Oh, definitely. All right, guys, just a brief interruption from this episode with Dr. Bruce Grayson to talk about my favorite CBD, Cured Nutrition. You guys know that I only use one type of CBD, and that is Cured Nutrition, because they are my favorite. I think they are the best. They now are not only CBD, but they also have functional mushrooms, adaptogens, and nootropics in their products. Nootropics are something I've been using and researching since before I even had a blog. So I was so excited when Cured Nutrition started putting nootropics in their products. To tell you a little bit about the company, it was started eight years ago by Joseph Sheehy, the founder, when he was going through a really deep depression, which he talked about on this podcast and he turned to nature and also to cannabis and CBD for his own healing. So all of their products do not get you high. CBD is just in the product, which is derived from hemp, and you can shop their products by all different categories, perform, balance, recover, etc. They also have pet CBD. My favorite product right now, because I'm pregnant, is the Pain Salve. I use it morning and night. It helps me so much on my joints and my muscles and just gives me so much relief. I also love the Mint 
tincture. You guys know I've been taking the mint tincture since day one. And I also love their cured rise, cured zen, and cured aura, which have functional mushrooms, CBD, and nootropics. Jonathan is also a fan. We have so much of this in our house because it just works so well. You can use the code blonde for 10% off at curednutrition.com. Tag me on Instagram if you try and let me know what you think. Now let's get back into this episode with Dr. Grayson. That reminds me of, so I've done a lot of plant medicine experiences for healing from chronic illness. I have Lyme disease. So I've, I've had a lot of ceremonies with ayahuasca and things like that, which I'm sure are totally separate from everything that we're talking about, but it's the same thing with surrendering control. Yes, yes. Don't surrender control. It's terrifying. It's it's yeah. so hard and so painful. And then the moment that you can surrender, at least in yeah. my experience, it becomes beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We're doing some research now comparing ayahuasca experiences with near-death experiences. Um, I'm so happy course, I brought it up. I want to I want to know everything. Yeah, we're doing it in Ecuador with people who know how to guide you through the experience. So it's not just here's the drug, take it, and then. You're on your own. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. important to do it with someone yes. who's very, very experienced with right. the medicine. So have you had any findings from that research yet? We haven't gotten the final results yet, but there do seem to be a lot of, lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are similarities between near-death experiences and spiritual traditions uh, all over the world. One of the big differences is that most of the spiritual traditions give you a guide or a guru of some type to help you through it. And there's a long literature of these experiences that you can read and find out about them. But near-death experiences come to you unbidden. You're not trying to achieve it like you do with other Mm -hmm. means. And you usually don't have a guide for it. So you're stuck on your own trying to understand what happened to you. And that's what's, that's very difficult for a lot of people. Oh, I can imagine uh, to have an unwanted experience like that yeah. could be very, very challenging. And yeah, reading your book, it made me think so much of some of those experiences that I've had with plant medicine, because it's it's just that shifting in perception of the life and yes. and beyond consciousness is so different than what yeah. we ever could have perceived. So the next question I have for you is so interesting that sometimes these people who have had these near-death experiences, their brain stops, but the mind goes on. So what's the difference there between the mind and the brain? Yeah, this is a tricky question because I was raised to believe that they're the same thing, that, you know, the, the mind is what the brain does. And all our thoughts and feelings are created by the brain. And clearly in a near death experience, that's not the case because the brain is sometimes totally shut down and always at least compromised so that it can't produce the kinds of elaborate thoughts and feelings in an immediate experience. And yet people say in an NDE, their minds were clearer than ever. Their thoughts were faster and clearer. Their perceptions were more vivid. And yet the brain wasn't there to support that. So how can this be? So it suggests that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Now, there are other Uh, I mean, in everyday life, clearly the mind and brain are connected. When you get drunk, you don't think very clearly. When you get hit on the head or had a stroke, that affects your thinking. But somehow in a near-death experience, in an extreme circumstances like that, the mind and brain can separate. And there are other examples of this. There's something called terminal lucidity. 
in which people with end-stage dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, who haven't recognized family for years or couldn't communicate, suddenly became totally lucid again and can carry on coherent conversations and recognize people. And the family may get very excited thinking they're recovering, but you don't recover from Alzheimer's. And after a few hours of this, they just end and die. And there's no medical explanation for how this can be. But if you believe that the mind and the brain are separate and that the brain somehow filters the mind, then as the brain deteriorates sufficiently, the mind can then flourish because it's not being filtered anymore. Mm-hmm. This idea that the, that the mind is a filter for the brain goes back to Hippocrates 2000 years ago. He said that the mind, the brain is the interpreter of the mind. Mm-hmm. And people liken it to, say, a, uh, a radio tuner. There's thousands of, tel- of radio stations out there. If you tried to listen to all of them at once, you wouldn't understand anything. So you use the tuner to tune into one station and filter out all the others so you can understand it. And the idea is that the brain does this as well. It filters out irrelevant stimuli, irrelevant thoughts and feelings. It just lets in those that are essential. So what's essential? The brain evolved like our other organs to help us survive in the physical world. So it lets in those thoughts that you need to survive. All the thoughts about deceased loved ones and about seeing God, you don't need those to find food and shelter and a mate. So filter those out and just let in the important stuff. And then when the mind's filter gets shut down, all this other wonderful stuff comes flooding in. So fascinating. I can imagine that very vividly. And a lot of the spiritual traditions and books that I read, that's what they say is that the brain is really just a filter for the mind. And then when that filter is gone, we all become one again. And that's very much what I believe. So how has all of your work affected your own spirituality and your beliefs? Well, I didn't have spirituality when I started out. I just Mm -hmm. had no idea what that was. And for a long time, I had a lot of skepticism about it, about whether it was just an imaginary thing or whether it really existed. And now I, I just, I can't deny it anymore. It's definitely there. And it's a part of all of us, whether you want to recognize it or not. Uh, you know, I started out, I have to say, very arrogant, trying to think that uh, science is going to solve all our problems and make help us understand everything. And it's very obvious now that science just uh, doesn't have the capacity, our brains don't have the capacity to understand half of what's going on. So I'm now comfortable with the idea that we're not going to understand this stuff. We can't as long as we're trapped in these brains that have a limited capacity and that uh, I'm okay with not knowing the answers. Because I think we'll know them eventually when we leave these brains behind. And I feel very comfortable with the idea of death. I can't say that I was really frightened of death before. I just thought it was nothingness, which isn't frightening to me. But now I think that there's something positive after death. I have no idea what it is because what people tell me, I know is just a coarse metaphor for it. They tell me that what's really going on, I can't explain to you. So I think whatever happens after death is something I can't possibly imagine now. But by all accounts, it's going to be something pleasant, not something to be feared. Mm -hmm. I think so too. So I think that's one of the best things about this work that you do is that it can help people lessen their fear of death, something that's going to happen to all of us at some point, because I know that's a very crippling fear for a lot of people. Yes, it is. It is. Interestingly, as a psychiatrist, when I first heard that people are not afraid of death after an NDE, I started worrying about whether that would make people suicidal because I knew people who would contemplated ending their lives, but were deterred by fear of what might happen. 
So I did a study of people who were admitted to the hospital with a suicide attempt, and I compared those who had NDEs as a result of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And what we found was that those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal afterwards than the people who didn't have an NDE, which seemed counterintuitive to me. So I asked them why that was, and they said, I now realize that everything has a meaning and a purpose. And the problems I have in my life are not just things to be run away from, but they're challenges I'm supposed to learn something from. There's a purpose to everything that goes on here. And furthermore, when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. You're not afraid of losing your life, so you're not afraid to jump in with both feet and take risks you wouldn't have taken before and experience life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. And that makes life more meaningful, more fulfilling, more enjoyable. And that makes them less suicidal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it shows them the meaning of life and that there exactly. is so much more to being on this planet than they could have ever imagined before. Right, right. Yeah, consistently, people after an NDE become much more spiritual, much more interested in relationships, in compassion, in caring. They become much more altruistic and they're much less involved with things of this world, physical, material goods, uh, power, prestige, fame, competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that changes their lives. Yeah. Yeah. That was my next question. What are some common threads of of what people do after they have a near-death experience? Do they commonly move? Do they get new careers? Like, do they just completely change their lives? Yeah. Unfortunately, it can create a lot of problems. You know, if a marriage is based on some uh, materialistic go- you know, goals that can really wreck the marriage. If one person comes back saying these are things aren't important anymore, mm-hmm. but a lot of careers get, uh, get shortchanged also. You know, I knew one fellow who was a policeman and that was his life. And he actually uh, had a near death experience when he bled out after a fairly routine operation that went haywire and he had a near death experience and, and came back. And after he recovered, he went back into the field and almost got his partner shot because he drew his gun and couldn't fire it. He just, the idea of hurting someone else just was unthinkable. So he ended up leaving the police force and went back to school and became a teacher. And typically people go into helping professions, whether it's education or healthcare or clergy or social work of some kind, but they leave behind violent careers if that's what they had or competitive careers. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So something exciting. You were recently featured on Netflix, which is such a big deal on the show Surviving Death. I watched it. I thought it was incredible. So what was that experience? Tell us what that was like to be on a Netflix show. Uh, It was good and bad. You know, as a scientist, I'm interested in the scientific way of approaching these things. And I thought uh, my episode was done pretty well. They had some really fascinating near-death experiences talking about their experiences. Some of the other episodes, I think they were interesting, but I think Netflix uh, missed the boat by not not showing a lot of the good scientific research. For example, they talked about mediumship and interviewed mediums and people who'd gone to them, but they totally ignored all the good scientific research into mediumship, which provides more respectability and credibility to it. So I think they kind of missed uh, some important material in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. So what are your thoughts then on mediumship and the scientific evidence of mediumship as a practice? Uh, actually, we've studied that at, at the university where I work, University of Virginia. Uh, we've been studying mind-brain anomalies for about 50 years now. And we have done some uh, double-blind studies of mediumship, um, where the medium and the person coming to 
scientists to encounter their deceased loved ones never actually meet, but a third party intermediates between them. And then we give these, the quote, sitters, the people who want to communicate with deceased ones, uh, five transcripts, one of which is theirs, and they have to read them all and so forth. And what we found is that there were some mediums who were very, very successful about this. And the sitters uh, picked theirs number one every single time. Not all mediums can do that, but there certainly are some that are dead on every single time. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I just love yeah. hearing the scientific research behind it. Yeah. It definitely gives credibility to something that is that is so, yeah. so beautiful in my opinion. Yeah. And we were able to publish this in a mainstream medical journal because it was, you know, research that was done well, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't material that they liked to, to publish most of the time. Right. Well, more people need to know about that. Exactly. I mean, I, I didn't even know that there was published medical research about yes. leadership. Yeah. yeah. Well, then maybe Netflix needs to do a second, <laughs> a second season and show us some more. Yeah. So what would you say to the skeptics of near-death experiences? What, is, what are some of the responses that you would give them? Well, yeah, I respect what they think because I used to be that way myself. And I understand the desire to explain all this in, in terms we understand. But I think it just defies our understanding at this point. You know, I can't say that we will never understand them, but I can't imagine how that can be. You know, it's hard to understand how the brain can produce these elaborate near-death experiences. But the dirty secret of neuroscience is that the brain can't understand our normal everyday thoughts. We have no idea, absolutely no idea, how an electrical or chemical process in the brain can produce a thought. People have been studying this for more than a century, and we haven't got the slightest hint of a suggestion of an idea of how it could happen. Uh, and yet people insist, oh yes, we'll understand it someday. Well. When is that going to be? You know, we're making no progress now. So mm-hmm. how can you say we'll, we'll understand it someday? Right. Yeah, that's a good response. Yeah. I mean, there's so much unknown out there. Yes. Yeah. I will say the attitudes are changing. Uh, that 50 years ago, when we first started talking about this in medical conferences, nobody knew what we were talking about. And a lot of them thought that we were just making it up or our patients were and we were just gullible. And now... When we talk to medical conferences, we often get doctors standing up in the audience saying, let me tell you about my near-death experience. It's, they're just so common that everyone knows about them. Mm-hmm. And whether doctors believe that they are something that's spiritual, they definitely believe that they are something that happens very frequently to their patients mm-hmm. and that affect their patients' lives. And therefore, they want to know about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that they're very accepted now in the medical profession. Mm-hmm. So you've seen a big shift over the oh, last tremendous, 45 tremendous years. Shift. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's, that's good. That's amazing. And so I know you're a professor at the university of Virginia. Is this a subject that you teach to your students? It is. It is. Ooh, Uh, (laughs) that's amazing. So in what context, like, is there a near death experience course that people take or you teach this in other classes? Uh, It's it's in other classes. You know, I teach um, a class in spirituality and psychiatry to the psychiatric residents. I'm invited to give grand rounds to the medical residents and the neurological residents and the family medicine residents where I talk about near-death experiences. So we give them all exposure to it mm-hmm. um, just so they will not be surprised when their patients start talking about it. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. What other topics do you teach about in spirituality and psychiatry? 
Uh, we talk about respecting patients' beliefs and not imposing your own beliefs on the patients. You know, what, what do you do when the patient asks you to pray with them? Is it okay to do that or not? When patients challenge you and say, I want someone of my religion talking to me, not, not, not a heathen, you know, and so forth. There's just a lot of uh, issues and things like, how do you tell when a unusual spiritual idea is a hallucination or not? Mm-hmm. How do you know when it's a delusion or not? Mm-hmm. And how do you separate these things? What's There's the answer? Of, what's, what's the well, answer it, it's, it's, it's difficult because a lot of psychotic patients will have delusions that are based in religious uh, terminology. But spiritual experiences generally enrich people's lives. They make people feel better about themselves. Whereas the delusion and hallucinations are usually terrifying to people and make them feel worse about themselves and hinder their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to look at the context in which the experience occurs. It's a, if it's a positive experience for them, it's probably a genuine spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. I would love to take that class. <laughs> Sounds so fascinating. So what's some of the latest research that you guys are working on at the International Association for Near-Death Studies? What are some interesting things that you could share with us that are coming soon? Well, one of my uh, colleagues, Marietta Pelvinova, is doing some studies now of people who have difficulty after a near-death experience, where they turn to for help, what kind of help they seek, what kind of help they receive, and whether it's helpful or not, and how it's helpful and how it's not helpful. And then we're also contacting the uh, counselors who work with these people and asking them the same questions. Uh, what's helpful, what's not helpful, and seeing whether they have the same ideas that the experiencers do. We also look at what types of things bring people to seek help. Uh, what are the problematic parts of the near-death experience? So we're looking generally at the after effects, how they change people's lives, how to make that process easier for them and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's so great. And what do you foresee for the future of this field? Well, fortunately, there are people who are much younger than I am who are looking into this now. Uh, There are some great scholars in Europe and in New Zealand and Australia who are looking into this, who have areas of expertise that are far beyond mine. People who know more about cross-cultural studies, know more about neurochemistry, neuro neuro, uh, electricity, who can look at different aspects of what's going on in the brain during these experiences. Maybe we can track down where this filter is in the, in the brain that allows people to get out and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on in this research that I'm hoping will take it far, far beyond where I can take it. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see. I mean, it's all so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. And I can't wait to see what happens with the plant medicine research as well. The links between yes. that and this. I think yes. there's so many similarities from there are. what there I can are. tell. So interesting. Wow. Thank you so much. Where can everyone find you? My website is www.brucegrayson.com. Grayson with an E, not an A. And that's probably the best way to reach me is through the website. Yes. And everyone's got to check out your book. It is so fantastic. I have it right here. It's called After. And it's so phenomenal. How's the book doing, by the way? That's doing well. I don't keep close track of it, but I think it's doing well. Oh, I'm sure it's doing well. I mean, it's full of yeah. such incredible information yeah. and I'm so grateful that you wrote it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So one final question before we get off, because I ask everybody who comes on the show for their Zodiac sign. Do you know what your sign is? Yes, I'm a Scorpio. Oh, you're a Scorpio. So when's your birthday? 
October 25th. Oh, good day. I'm October too, but I'm oh, a Libra. You're a Libra. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm told that Scorpios typically get uh, gravitate towards death. Yeah, actually, that's true. Scorpios like to investigate the underworld and yes. the dark, kind of like the darker side of everything, but the depth and the spirituality. Yes. So you're definitely living in alignment with being a Scorpio. Yeah. So yes. good. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Grayson. This was amazing. And I'm just well, so you. happy to share your work with you. Thank everyone. you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You too. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm so happy that you guys are here. This was such a different episode for TBB Podcast because I typically only have people on the show that I know, but occasionally I will have people on that I am a really big fan of and I'm a huge fan of Dr. Grayson. I devoured his book. I learned so much from it. And if you're interested in near-death experiences, I think you would love his book too. It's called After. And I also loved hearing the synchronicities between near-death experiences and ayahuasca and other types of plant medicine. So that was really interesting to me. I hope that you guys enjoyed this conversation. It was a really fun one to have. Thank you to Sakara for sponsoring the show as well as Cured Nutrition. You can check out those links in the show notes. And as always, if you feel inspired to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps with visibility so much and it also just makes me really happy and means a lot to me. So email me a screenshot to jordan at thebalancebond.com of your rating and review if you take the time to do it so I can thank you by sending you my free yoga ebook and also just send you a little personalized thank you email. Also come say hello on Instagram. There's lots of fun things going on over there on both the Balance Bond and TBB podcast and check out the Celestial Diet, which is now widely available on thebalancewand.podia.com. So excited to have you guys here and we'll be back with another guest next week. I cannot wait and we'll talk soon.